Would you please take the word of God and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. As you turn there in the book of Acts and chapter 17, we come here to this chapter. We are in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. As I mentioned, the book of Acts is not everything that happened in the first century churches, but it is everything that God wants us to know happened. And so we learn some things here as we continue here. Remember, before we come to Thessalonica, uh, Paul had just left Philippi. And remember in Philippi, he had been uh, falsely accused, he had been beaten, he had been uh, put in prison. And those difficulties, he was able to see that those difficulties brought about a great work. The salvation of the Roman, the, the jailer and his family and uh, and so God used those difficulties, that affliction, to allow the work of God to flourish. And so now we come to Thessalonica, and Thessalonica is not going to be the reception that we might think. But notice here, Acts 17, and the Word of God says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Whom Jason hath received, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason... And of the other, they let them go. I want to bring your attention to um, verse 6. And the Bible says that um, when they grabbed a hold of Jason, who had event, evidently helped Paul and Silas, maybe housed them at some point, uh, they bring him to the authorities of the city and, and says, These are they that have turned the world upside down. And uh, the expression here, to turn the world upside down, means that they have disrupted the city. They're getting in the way of the world and what the city wants to do. And, and they're claiming that now, they didn't claim that, but they're saying that Jesus ought to be king. Now, he ought to be king, yes, but they didn't communicate that in the way that they thought, that he should replace the Roman king, but that Jesus ought to be king of their lives. And so I want to preach this morning on this, the, the disruption in Thessalonica, the disruption in Thessalonica. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity first to have your word and it is our desire that we be instructed, that we learn, that we also be challenged by those first century believers who came now to Thessalonica and disrupted the city. Lord, in the same measure as we look around us, the only hope for our, our nation, for the world, is that the world might be disrupted. Not, not by violence or protest, but by the preaching of the gospel. Lord, help us to understand the importance of this disruption. And that, Lord, today we might be, in the good sense, a disrupting force in the world. So that you might be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
As we come here in Paul's second missionary journey, we know the first part of Paul's journey began in Asia Minor. He finally sailed over into what is referred to as Macedonia, which would be today Greece. But Macedonia during the Greek Empire, Macedonia was the center of the Greek Empire. After the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire took over, and uh, much of Greek culture and mythology is found in Macedonia. And uh, Paul went first, when he sailed from Asia Minor, he went to Neapolis, and then he went to Philippi. Our text indicates that he went through Amphipolis and Apollonia. It doesn't tell us he stayed there. The Bible says he passed through there. And he finally comes to a synagogue of the Jews in the city of Thessalonica. Now, the city of Thessalonica was named by Cassander in 315 B.C. after his wife. His wife's name was Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So, just to give you a few connections there. But in Paul's day, Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Uh, you think about Macedonia, it was a very wealthy, uh, very rich, very powerful, very influential area of the world at that time uh, for many reasons, whether it was for uh, Greek mythology and uh, pagan religions, the center was there. Uh, if you think about the riches and the prosperity in the world was found there in uh, Macedonia, and uh, Thessalonica, as being the capital, was also a strong military and commercial center. It was actually on the coast. And so, as a matter of fact, when you look at when Paul went over to Macedonia, apart from Philippi, which was a little inland, every other city that he went to was on the coast, uh, if you were looking towards Asia Minor. And so Paul is going to go along the coast of Macedonia and Thessalonica is a coastal city, a lot of trade, a lot of commerce, but also a strong military presence. But he finds something in Thessalonica that he did not find find in Philippi, and that was a synagogue. Uh, we know it has been the pattern of Paul's ministry everywhere he went to go first to the synagogue, and that was simply an obedient to the Lord's command to go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek but Thessalonica was famous for two things. Now, although there was a strong military presence, a lot of commerce going on there, as Thessalonica being a port city, but Thessalonica was famous first for its great wealth, but secondly, for its many vices. A lot of sin in Thessalonica. A lot of immorality in Thessalonica. A lot of crime in Thessalonica. And so Paul here comes to this city, and as we read, we go through our text, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of give us an overview of what happened in Thessalonica, and then I'm going to concentrate on what Paul did in Thessalonica. Because when you get an overview, as I mentioned, it was a wealthy city, but also a city of vice, we see that in our very text. And then Paul, he is quickly pushed out of Thessalonica, and a little later, he is concerned about the believers in Thessalonica, and so he writes the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, and in that epistle, he's going to mention how they heard the gospel and what they're dealing with. As we look at our text here, we uh, see in verse 5 that the Jews which believed not, so in the first part of our text, we see that many believed of the Jews the Bible mentions devout Greek and also women. Those were probably Jewish uh, uh, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and who were proselytes, who were promoting uh, the Jewish faith. And the Jews that believed not, in contrast, in verse 5, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out unto the people. Now, verse 5 gives us a, a summary statement of the type of city, the type of people you would find in that city. The Bible says, lewd fellows of the baser sort. What in the world does that mean? I'll explain that in just a moment. 
But before we go there, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4. And I want to give you here um, an example as Paul writes to the believers at Thessalonica of what he tells them to do. So we, we see in Acts uh, 17, uh, 5 that a lot of strange uh, people and wicked people there in the city. But 1 Thessalonians also, uh, chapter 4, shows us the 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 immorality and the prevalence of immorality in Thessalonica. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, when we were there, we commanded you, we gave you some truth and some commandments to observe. Now, that would indicate that Paul would observe something that was prevalent in that society, and now he is reminding them in this letter what he told them initially. Now, what did he tell them? Verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Uh, he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God who also hath given unto us his Holy Spirit. And so you sense here when Paul he writes this letter and he reminds them of what he had already commanded them. And the first thing he says is, abstain from fornication. So you know that there was all kind of uh, essential sins in the city of Thessalonica that he not only told them in command when he was there, but now he reminds them in this letter lest they forget. And he tells them, be very careful not to be as the Gentiles who walk according to the lusts of the flesh. And so the city of Thessalonica, based on just the few references, without going into studying the history of Thessalonica, we know it's a city of uh, both vice and immorality, also a place of great wealth, which is not a good combination. Because wealth would allow you to be involved in vice and to be able to either cover it up or to do all that your flesh please. So as we return to Acts chapter 17, as we notice in our text, we find in verse 2 and 3 that Paul, the Bible says in verse 2 of Acts 17, that Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So we get a little timeline on how long Paul was there before eventually he was kicked out of the city and there was an uproar. He was there at least for three weeks. Uh, three Sabbath days, so that would be three consecutive uh, Saturdays where the Jews would gather. And on that particular day, as I explained early on in his first missionary journey, that typically in a Jewish synagogue, the Jews would gather a text, a portion of uh, the Torah would be read, and then they would allow different people to give an exhortation. And so different men would be able to stand up and give an exhortation, whether it was connected to the text, didn't have to be connected with the text, but some would give an exhortation. Now Paul, because of his pedigree as a Jew, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, he had the pedigree to be able to stand up and to exhort them and to eventually preach Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. Uh, his background allowed him that opportunity to be able to stand up in the synagogue and to give an exhortation. And verse 2 and 3 tells us what Paul did. He, for three Sabbath days, verse 2, he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. That's what he did. Now, that word reason would be, uh, you know, he is trying to convince them he is using the Scriptures to try to convince them. Now, notice what he does. I think that the idea of him reasoning is explained more in detail in verse 3. What did he do? How did he reason with them? Well, the Bible says, opening 
and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. Now here, those two expressions here, opening and alleging, uh, verse 2 tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and he was preaching about Jesus Christ. Now, there are two important aspects here that we read about Paul's preaching that we find in our text. First, we see the manner in which he preached, and then we see the message that he preached. And by the way, two, the, both aspects are important. Not only the manner in which he presented Christ, but also the actual presentation and the message about Christ. Think about those two words. He opened and alleged. He opened, opening and alleging. The word opening uh, has the idea of opening something or revealing something that is unknown. Uh, the word means to open thoroughly, to explain, to unfold. This word was usually applied when opening something that was previously shut like an eye. When somebody maybe had an eye they couldn't see, the opening of the eye, that expression was used. That means to reveal something that is unknown. It means to explain what is concealed and obscure. And so that's what Paul did. He reasoned, and what did he do when he reasoned? He opened what the, the scriptures to them. He revealed to, to them something that they did not know. He not only opened the scriptures, but he alleged from the scriptures. Uh, so while opening means to reveal something that is unknown, alleging means to prove what has been revealed. So you see what he does. He first reveals the unknown, and then he goes the second step, to prove what he has revealed. That what he has revealed is indeed the truth. Uh, the word alleging here, uh, the word means to place alongside and to present or to expound the truth. And so Paul first revealed to the Jews in the synagogue what they did not know, and then he proved to them the truthfulness of what he revealed. By the way, that's a good pattern for any preaching. To reason from the scriptures. You know, that's the, the wonderful thing about church is that the preacher, although he may feel sometimes that, that way sometimes, does not walk around and beat you over with a club over the head. So you have to do this. It's about reasoning from the scriptures. And when you reason, you do two things. You open things that are unknown, that might be unknown. You might already know those things. But then to prove to you what has been revealed, that it is indeed the truth. And so that's what Paul did. Uh, that was the manner of his preaching. But then we're going to look in just a moment at the message that he preached. Now, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to come back to it. But notice verse 3. He opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. There are three things in the message. The first thing that Paul gives in the message is the necessity of the suffering of Christ. Then, the second thing is the necessity of his resurrection. And thirdly, is the de declaration of his identity. Do you notice here? Christ must needs have suffered, and, you could say, must needs have risen from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. That's who he is. He is Christ. Now, let's look at what happened as a result of that message. I'll come back to the message. That's the most important part of the text. So I'll come back to it. I want to finish with that. But notice verse 4. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So the first thing here, we, we are made aware of the positive. There's going to be a positive reaction to the message, and there's going to be a negative reaction to the message. By the way, that's the case for every message that is preached. There's either going to be a positive reaction, a positive response, or a negative response to the preaching, and that's in every case. Uh, everywhere Paul went, somebody said there was e either a revival or a riot, and that's uh, so true. But the Bible tells us in verse 4 that some of them believed. So 
These were, based on our text, they were some of the Jews that had been listening to Paul and Silas at least for three weeks. They were believing those Jews. Uh, the Bible says they consorted. Uh, the word consorted, I think it's important. Uh, the word is given consorted in our text because of what happens afterwards. The word consorted means that they associated with Paul and Silas. Now, one of those would have been Jason. Jason, in other words, not only believed, but then he associated himself, uh, himself with Paul and Silas. And so there is really a twofold implication in the word consorted. First, they privately conversed with Paul and Silas. But secondly, it meant that they publicly attended the meetings. That's what I mean, consorted. You're in private with them and you're in public with them. And so the word consorted has the idea sometimes you might uh, identify somebody privately, but you might not identify with them publicly. Right? Sometimes children get a little older, and uh, when they're younger, you know, it's all about the parents, and then they get teenagers, and they don't, almost don't want to be seen with their parents, you know. They don't want to consort with them. Don't want to associate with that, that, that habit. But here, the Bible tells, now I believe here is what happens later on, is they're looking for Paul and Silas, and they're looking for anybody that has privately and publicly identified with Paul and Silas. So the Bible tells us that some of the Jews consorted, associated with them, both privately and publicly. Now, the devout Greeks, there's not only the Jews that believe, but also the Bible says devout Greeks. So devout Greeks would have been Gentiles in Thessalonica, so non-ethnic Jews, uh, no, non uh, Gentiles, they're not ethnic Jews. There you go. But they had converted at some point to, Jew, the, to the Jewish religion. And the word devout indicates that they were proselytizing or they were promoting the Jewish religion uh, because they were devout, devout Greeks. And then the Bible throws another category, and that is chief women. Now, chief women were no doubt Gentile women who were probably married to city leaders and dignitaries, people who were leaders in the city of Thessalonica. And apparently, the Bible says a significant percentage of these women believed. Notice our text. And of the chief women, not a few. So apparently, when Paul preached, some Jews believed. The text indicates that there was also devout Greeks, uh, and so we could say that that is not a few of them. So I, I think because of the contrast, there were probably few Jews that believed. But not few Greeks, devout Greeks, and not a few women that were Gentile. And so the predominance of those who have believed are those who were not born Jews, but who were born as Gentiles. By the way, just to clear the confusion, uh, the Bible makes two categories in, in the, the time of the Jews. The Jews would do that themselves. There are Jews and Gentiles. The Jews is a Jew. Gentiles is everybody else. So today we might say that, well, there's uh, Americans, uh, then there's Canadians, and there's French, and there's uh, Spaniards, and then there's Jews. The Jews would say, no, there's just Jews and Gentiles. There's only two categories, Okay. And so this would be anybody else apart from an uh, ethnic Jew. Now, that's the positive reaction to the message. But we come to verse 5 and we see the negative. But the Jews which believed not. So the Bible says back in uh, verse 4 that some of them of the Jews believed some of them, which indicates a minority. Verse 5, but the Jews, the great majority of them. The Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city in uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So here's where we get some insight into the city and what the city was like. The Jews which did not believe first, the Bible says they moved with what? Envy. You see, envy caused them to move, move them to respond in the way they did. Now, the word envy means 
to have a warm feeling. You ever had a warm feeling? Uh, not that it could be in the positive sense. I really like that person, or I really don't like that person. Uh, that's a warm feeling. Moving with with envy, uh, it is a warm feeling for something or against something. The word envy means someone who is affected, uh, someone who desires something, someone who is jealous, someone who is zealous. And so apparently, the preaching of Paul, alleging that Jesus must needs suffer and risen, and that this Jesus who we preach is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, it uh, turns something in them. They move to envy, and their envy, that burning sensation within them, caused them to respond. Now, it's interesting here because that fitly describes the world, but it should not describe the Christian. In other words, the Christian, uh, we have feelings sometimes, but we should never be moved by those feelings of anger and hatred. You see, what describes the world is that they acted upon those feelings. They acted upon what they felt, and they moved with envy. So the Bible doesn't say they just had envy. It says they moved with envy. That's descriptive of the world. You know, we live in an emotional, out-of-control world. Just turn on, don't do it, but if you turn on the news channel for five minutes, everybody's out of control. Right? Uh, just, I mean, and, and people get stirred up about little things. Now, what were they moved to do? Notice. When they moved with envy... So they're raging inside. So they got to take it out. What are they going to do? What is their move? Their move is this. They took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Well, that's a mouthful. What is that? Lewd fellows of the baser sort. Let me break it down. The word lewd is a general term that means somebody who is hurtful and evil, generally speaking. It refers to men who are typically devoid of essential character. Uh, men who are uh, diseased in the moral sense. They're immoral people. They are derelict and many times vicious. So they're referred to as lewd. Uh, again, you can uh, see what's going on. I mean, the violence is increasing at uh, record numbers throughout our throughout our land and and I mean Philadelphia, which is not too far from here. The crime is I think it's record. It's never been that way, and people are out of control. What well, we would say they're lewd fellows. There is no sense of morality. There is no sense of of decency, and that's that group. Now again, that's not the group that was moved with envy. The group that was moved with envy recruited those lewd fellows of the baser sort. So that's the word lewd. Then, then to talk about fellows, well, that's just a man. Okay? Uh, it means someone who is masculine, a uh, husband, a sir. The term did not apply to women. So there would not be women in this group. Okay? Um, and by the way, generally in society, although it seems that the trend is going uh, the wrong direction, but generally in society... Men tend to be the more violent and obstinate ones more than women. Now, today I think we're seeing a combination where everybody is just out of control. But that was not so in that time. Um, so we have lewd fellows, and then the Bible says of the baser sort. What does that mean? Well, the, the expression baser sort refers to basically the place where these people would congregate. The baser sort. You, you might think of it, um, I remember when I came here, somebody said, hey, if you go down this street in Wilmington, be careful. Why? Because, well, that's where criminals hang out. And you might, if you go there, you might not be safe. Ah, so we would say that's people who are of the baser sort. They congregate in particular places. You would find them in certain places. And so these men would often be found in the marketplace uh, or the two, or on uh, town squares, uh, you would find these men in places commonly frequented by people. Why? Because they got to be where the people are. 
to get things out of people, to take advantage of people. And so the general expression, lewd fellows of the baser sort, the general expression here describes men uh, who are quickly aroused from sleep, men who are awakened, men who rise up, they are easily influenced into causes that they do not understand. Uh, nor do they care to understand. They simply take pleasure in conflict and chaos itself. They thrive on that. Well, I think in the last three years we've seen how that happens everywhere. There are people who take advantage of situations. I mean, I think there's a... Uh, uh, during COVID, there was riots all in a lot of the cities. And you know what people did is they, they many people said, oh, we're, we're protesting against injustice. That, that was the, 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 the movement. And what did people do? They took advantage of that situation, and they looted stores and stole. And to this day, some cities have still not recovered from the damage that was done. What, how, how do we describe those people? Let's give a biblical description. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. But it was not just men. It was also women. So what exists today also existed in Thessalonica. But that group of people was not taking advantage in this case in stealing from stores and looting stores. They demonstrated their anger and their cause against God's people. So, Verse 5, the Jews which believed not moved with them. He took them, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the basis and gathered a company. So they gathered a bunch of them together, formed a company, and set all the city on an uproar. <laughs> you see how that happens? I think we might not have understood how that happens like five or six years ago, but I think now we see how that happens. How a whole city, just by even something that is insignificant, can turn into an uproar and be out of control. And so what do they do? They set all the sin uproar, and they assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren to the rulers of the city, crying, These uh, that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now I want to think about that. They assaulted the house of Jason. The word assaulted here literally means to stand on top of. Okay, so if you go a few years back, uh, you had uh, people out of control who would climb on top of uh, police vehicles and just smash them and burn them. That is assaulted. The word means to literally be on top of and to assault. And so the idea here is they're breaking in the house, they're ravaging the house, they're assaulting the house. And so these men went into the house of Jason by force looking for Paul and Silas. Now, they did not find Paul and Silas, and so they drew Jason out. That means they dragged him out. They drew Jason out of the house. Now, pause here. Uh, keep your hand here in Acts 17. Notice back to 1 Thessalonians how Paul describes the time, his time in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, notice verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. The Bible says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Hey, that's how they received the word, in much affliction. Notice, with joy of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> they received the word with joy, in affliction. That, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Notice verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You were there, you, you turned, you literally turned from idols to serve the living God. Notice in chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, Paul, he explains to them why he sent Timothy, because he was concerned for them. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. 
and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Now the question is, why would he send Timothy predominant? Well, I think that if you read Acts 17, Timothy was with them, but when they were looking, they were looking for Paul and Silas. So I think that probably Timothy was behind the scene at some point, and so he's sending him back to Thessalonica. Why? Because he wasn't sought after. And so he sends Timothy to check on their welfare. Verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily when ye were, uh, when we were with you, we told you before that, that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So he said, I was, I was just concerned that you might have been tempted because of the affliction and because of the opposition, because of the tribulation, that you just quit. That you just succumb to the affliction and the temptation and that you just forsook the assembling of God's people. And he finds, you can read the rest of the chapter, there for sake of time, but in the remainder of the letter he says that he found not only that they were faithful, but their love was abounding too. They went even beyond what Paul had expected. By the way, in affliction. In affliction. Now, as we read our text, we see the rest of the chapter mentions that these are they that have turned the world upside down. That expression, to turn the world upside down, means to disturb and to trouble. And so the accusation here, when they brought Jason, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they brought Jason, and they said, they're disturbing things. In Thessalonica. Well, they've disturbed what? Well, they're, distor- they're disturbing the idolatry in Thessalonica. They are disturbing the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. Uh, they are disturbing the immorality in Thessalonica. Paul, when he writes to them, First Thessalonians, he writes and he says, You remember what I commanded you to abstain from fornication, not to live like the Gentiles? And so the, the, the Thessalonian believers would leave their meeting with Paul and then the people out would continue in their immorality and then they would say, well, that's not right. We're, we're, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to stop that. And so they're saying they're disrupting the city. They're disrupting the immorality. They're disrupting uh, the rule. They're disrupting the society. And by the way, not in a, a, a negative sense, but in a positive sense. Uh, Paul never led a riot. He, he never led an insurrection, although he was accused of it. He never did that. What did he do? He preached Christ. Go back with me to verse 3. Here is what Paul said. We noted already the manner in which he preached. He opened and alleged. He revealed what was unknown to them, and he proved what he revealed to them by the Scripture. He reasoned to them, verse 2, from the Scriptures. But I want to pay attention to the message. The content of Paul's preaching can be summarized in his own words in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. For we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul preached Christ. That's what disrupted the city. Uh, that's what caused a, an uproar. And so in preaching Christ, Paul opened and he alleged three primary truths about Christ. First, he talked about the necessity of Christ's suffering. Then he talked about the necessity of His resurrection. And then he talked about he declared his identity that Jesus Christ who died and Jesus Christ who was risen is Christ. Okay, so I'm interested in the word. When Paul says Christ, when he, imagine we're in the synagogue and he says, Christ must needs have suffered. Paul, when he says it, he says, it was obligated. It was the only way. There is no other way. 
he must needs have suffered. Now, it's interesting because that expression, if you take that expression in the book of Acts, what Paul is saying, Paul did not have the privilege to walk with Christ during his earthly ministry. Peter did, we know that, but Paul didn't do that. But it's interesting as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what Paul is saying here is exactly what Jesus himself said time and time again. Let me give you an example. You don't have to turn there, but let me give you examples. In Matthew 16, 29, the Bible says Jesus, he showed to his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Notice he said, I must. It must happen. In Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them and said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Notice he says, he must. It must happen. There is no other way. Luke 9, 22, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised from the dead. Luke 17, 24, for as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part unto under heaven, shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in this day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Even after Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, you remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said, well, we had believed. You remember what Jesus said to them? He says unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Doesn't it? Didn't the scriptures require this? He then meets in the upper room with all the disciples in Luke 24, and he says unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. He said unto them in verse 46, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations. You remember what Jesus said Himself in John 3 when He was talking to Nicodemus, He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up there is no other way. It must happen. There is no other way. He must suffer. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus Christ dying on the cross was not a mistake. It was not a happenstance. He was not a martyr. The Bible says he must suffer. In Acts chapter 1, when the first century church is waiting for the promise of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says this, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. He says, it had to happen. He must suffer. Paul, Christ must needs have suffered. Why did he suffer? Well, it's very simple. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, he says, that God hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53 had prophesied, why must he suffer? Because Isaiah 53 said, he was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. There is no other way for us to be saved. There is no other way for sin to be forgiven. Even all of the Old Testament sacrifices were not worthy or were not, um, uh, did not affect cleansing, complete cleansing for man. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, as John the Baptist said, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who was what? Slain before the foundation of the world. He must suffer. 
It's the only way for sin to be atoned for. It's the only way for us to be forgiven. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He must suffer. There is no other way. And so Paul says, Christ must need suffer. But he also said he must be risen. He must rise. By the way, it was not only his suffering that was prophesied. It was also his resurrection. But Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is vain. He would say later in verse 17, if Christ be not risen, your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins. You see, Jesus, yet he died as our substitute, but then he just didn't just die and stay there. He rose from the dead, and he brought the blood atonement in the presence of God, and, and just as it was in the temple, he offered himself at the mercy seat before God and said, here is the atonement for the people, and here is the proof that the atonement has been sufficient. He rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, there is no message to preach. Without the resurrection, our faith is empty. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. Without God, we would still be without God and without hope in this world. It's interesting the order, he says, he must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom we preach unto you is Christ. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it means, Christ means anointed one. It would be the term that would be associated with Messiahship. And Messiahship, the doctrine that Messiah came to take away our sin, is not a New Testament doctrine, it is an Old Testament doctrine. That the Messiah would come, and that he would offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice and as the atonement for the sins of the people. And so he says, the one that you've been awaited, awaiting for all that time, and by the way, those who were sitting there in that synagogue would have a choice to make at that moment. They would say, either we believe the Messiah has already come or we're still waiting for him to come. And so uh, Paul has been reasoning with them from the scriptures he opened, he revealed to them something they did not know, that Messiah had already come. And then he alleged to them, he proved to them from the scriptures that everything that Jesus did from the incarnation uh, to the, his perfect sinless life to the miracles that validated his messiahship to his crucifixion and also to his burial and his resurrection is the proof that he indeed is the anointed one, God's chosen one to be the atonement for the sin of the people. He is Messiah. There is no other Messiah. And so the Jews had to make a decision. We believe Messiah has come or we're still waiting for him. You know, today the Jews are still waiting for Messiah. But you know what the problem is? They're not waiting for Messiah to take away their sin. They're waiting for Messiah to establish a kingdom. They're still waiting for the wrong type of Messiah. Messiah of the Old Testament is, yes, a Messiah that will establish his kingdom, but who would first come to die and to suffer and to rise from the dead. Say, Pastor, why would such a message cause an uproar? That's a good question. But doesn't it still cause an uproar today? You say, wait a minute. We're just telling people that they can be forgiven of their sins and have a home in heaven. Isn't that wonderful and good news? Yeah, the gospel is the good news. Then why are people in our poor? Well, because the moment you speak of Messiah, the fact that he suffered, he suffered for what? For sin. What does the Bible say? The just for the unjust. Well, see, the world doesn't like the idea of being unjust. The world is still trying today, even at 2,000 years after Christ has come, is still trying to declare itself to be just. Jesus 
gave us, gave us the answer in, in John 4. He says that when light is come into the world, they love darkness rather than life white because their deeds are evil. As soon as you preach on Christ, what happens? Sin is exposed. And see, the world does not like sin to be exposed. The world loves sin and wants to remain in sin. And they might like a God. And they might like to embrace a God that is okay with their sin. But they're not okay with embracing a God who is not okay with their sin. And therein lies the problem. So Thessalonica, wealth, glory, the capital of Macedonia, but all kind of vice and immorality, the Jew says, we got to stop this. And they know exactly who to go to, to stir things up and to stop the message of the gospel. But here's the wonderful news. We read 1 Thessalonians, the church is doing well. The church is doing really well. So I want to ask us this question. First century Christianity, we do not experience the opposition that they experienced. But how are we doing? As a church, corporately as a church. It means individually, but also corporately. How are we doing? Do, do we think our lives to be difficult? Are we dealing with the afflictions that they, they dealt with? Have our houses been assaulted just because we are believers? Well, the, the answer is no. And yet they continue to preach and to propagate the gospel. Could it be that there's a sense that when it is easy, we sense that there is no need for the gospel to be preached? You look around you and say, oh, look at church. There's churches everywhere. Isn't that wonderful? Actually, no, it's not. Because most of them are not preaching the truth, and they're not preaching the gospel. Say, so how can you say that? Well, I, I go out knocking on doors, and I meet a lot of people that go to church. And they're lost. The truth is not being preached. If you share the gospel, you're going to disturb things and stir things up. But can I encourage you? Don't allow minimal opposition and trying to act as if it's the type of opposition they had in Thessalonica. That's just me trying to encourage you. Sometimes we think that it's the end of the world. Somebody just shut the door on me. As a matter of fact, we're not yesterday. Had, had a great time yesterday. Now, one person was ugly or mean or dispirited, had the opportunity to speak with a Muslim man, give him the gospel. We left him on good terms. I did tell him he was lost. <laughs> and so, let, let's, we, we have a window of opportunity while we are here to have an impact in this community with the gospel of Christ. And so we might tend to focus on all the negative things happening in our lives, but let's refocus and think we don't have it that bad. We don't have it that bad. And so let's not use our ease as an excuse to lay down and wait for Jesus to come.